Episode 12, Philip of Macedon, Alexander the Great, and the Spread of Greek Culture. Hi, my name is Clayton Mills, and welcome to A Short Walk Through Our Long History, a podcast where we look at the events of history and try to see how those events shaped our modern world. This is Episode 12, Philip of Macedon, Alexander the Great, and the Spread of Greek Culture. The really golden part of the Golden Age of Greece took place in a pretty small area, actually. It took place mostly on the Attic Peninsula and mostly in the city of Athens. But most scholars include the years even after Athens was destroyed as part of the Golden Age. The years when Greece was conquered and ruled by the Macedonians, and then Greek culture was spread all over the eastern Mediterranean and beyond. The generally accepted end of the Golden Age is the death of Alexander in 323 BC. But we're getting ahead of ourselves here because we haven't even really introduced our friend Alexander. I did kind of mention Alexander before when I was talking about Aristotle because Aristotle was his tutor. Aristotle was called to Macedon from Athens by Alexander's father, Philip. So we should start this part of the story today with Philip, who is pretty interesting in his own right. He's also the guy who really brings the end of the era of independent Greek city-states. So let me start with a bit of explanation, though, about Macedonia. There is currently a country called North Macedonia on our current world map. It sits on top of Greece and Albania that is roughly where ancient Macedonia was, too. The boundaries aren't exactly equal. Just a quick side bit on recent history, Macedonia was part of communist Yugoslavia and became independent in 1991 after the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989 and then the collapse of communism. So now it's an independent country. The Macedonians have always been sort of Greek. It was a separate kingdom and it didn't follow the city-state model of Greece, but the people mostly spoke Greek and had a lot of similar beliefs and customs, including the same gods. The culture was similar to Greece's, but without the democracy of Athens. It was a more warlike place, but not as fanatical about war as Sparta. But then, really, no one was as fanatical about war as Sparta. Until Rome, that is. They took it to a whole other level. The Macedonians did, however, develop their own version of the phalanx battle formation that we talked about in episode 8.1. Macedonia enjoyed mostly peaceful relationships with Greece, though there was fighting going on at times. I mean, it was the ancient world, and there was always fighting going on. It's just what you did with your free time back in the day. Honey, I'm off to fight the Greeks. Okay, be home for supper, dear. There was a line of kings that ruled over Macedon known as the Argead dynasty. Philip was the third legitimate son of one of the Argead kings. He was born in 382 B.C., Philip's father, Amentus, sent him away twice to be a hostage to ensure peace treaties with other cities. He was sent to Illyria at the age of 10, and then he came back, and at age 15 he was sent as a hostage to the Greek city of Thebes. While he was in Thebes, his father died, and a regent named Perdiccas took over, and Perdiccas brought Philip back. Perdiccas soon died in battle with the Illyrians, leaving Philip, at age 24, the king of Macedon. It was Philip, based on his Greek experience, who organized the Macedonians to fight in the phalanx system, but he even improved it. 
The Macedonian phalanx had 256 men in a square that was 16 men across and 16 men deep. It was an incredibly effective battle formation, but it took a lot of training and discipline to do it right. Philip, and then later also Alexander, provided this kind of training. The Macedonian phalanx soldiers also carried an extremely long spear called a sarissa, which is 18 feet long. It's about double the length of the standard spear that other phalanxes carried. You totally have to Google some images of a Macedonian phalanx to get the idea of how fearsome a battle unit this was. So Philip took on the Illyrians and won and began to build an empire. He also took several wives. His third wife was named Olympias, and she was an early version of a Caradassian. Beautiful, but extremely weird. She kept snakes in her bedroom, for example, just crawling around on the floor, and she let them sleep in the bed with her. Yuck. But in 356 BC, she gave birth to Philip's first son and his heir, Alexander. Philip and his armies kept adding territory, including moving south into Greece and taking over several Greek cities. He also added a lot of Greek soldiers to his army and to his government. Like I said, Macedon was always kind of Greek, but now the two were merging even more. In 343 BC, Philip invited Aristotle to come to Macedonia to tutor Alexander, who would have been about 13 at the time. Imagine having Aristotle as your personal tutor. I mean, seriously, if you could pick from all of history someone who you would have them be your tutor for a few years, Aristotle would have to be near the top of everybody's list. I mean, you wouldn't pick one of the Cardassians. But Alexander got to be his student, and apparently he was also pretty bright as well as being ambitious. He was also apparently very charismatic. It's also said of Alexander when he was a youth that he slept with a copy of the Iliad under his pillow. Good choice for a bit of light reading that. One quick story about Alexander before I finish up with Philip. Philip brought a huge Greek cavalry horse back up to Macedon from Greece. The horse's name was Bucephalus. He had a very big head, which is how he earned his name. Bucephalus means ox head. This might be the most famous horse of all time, by the way. Bucephalus was big and wild and beautiful, and he wouldn't let anyone ride on him. He was almost all black except for a white star mark on his forehead. Alexander apparently spent a lot of time watching the horse. Philip decided to send it back to Greece since it was unmanageable, but Alexander protested. According to the story, Alexander had noticed that the horse was spooked by his own shadow, so Alexander took the horse's reins and he steered the horse so that it was facing into the sun and couldn't see its own shadow. The horse calmed down and even allowed Alexander to mount him. Bucephalus became Alexander's horse, and Alexander took him on all his military campaigns until the horse was killed in a battle in 326 BC. Right after that, Alexander named a city after him. But back to Philip. We're getting ahead of ourselves again. In 338 BC, he invaded southern Greece, aiming for Athens. The Athenians asked the Spartans for help, and the Spartans said, yeah, right. So it was just Athens versus Philip and the Macedonians. Philip put Alexander on the right wing, and he fought in the front lines with his own men in the battle. His group, Alexander's group, was the first to break the Athenian lines, and then the Athenians scattered. So from the beginning, Alexander got in good with his soldiers because he fought bravely, and he always fought in all of his battles. The Macedonians won the battle, and they marched on to Athens, which capitulated. Philip treated Athens with great respect, though, and other Greek cities, including Corinth, willingly and wisely joined yet another league called the Corinthian League, with Philip at its head. So now, Philip was essentially king of Greece and Macedonia.
In 336, Philip had a huge festival in preparation for a new attack on Persia. And as he stepped into a theater at the end of a parade, he was stabbed to death by his jealous lover, a man named Pausanias. And Pausanias was then killed by Philip's own guard troops. So in 336 BC, at the age of just 20, Alexander became the king of Macedon and Greece. As soon as he was crowned, Athens and Thebes seceded from the Corinthian League. Athens even had a festival day for Pausanias, the guy who had killed Philip. This rather bothered Alexander, and he immediately called up his entire army and marched for Thebes, which was closer. He got to Thebes, and he offered the city a chance to rejoin the league with no consequences. The city refused. Bad idea. Alexander's army broke down the city gates and looted the city, and then about 30,000 Thebans were captured, and they all were sold as slaves. Then they burned the city. Alexander and the army marched on to Athens. He gave Athens the same offer to rejoin the league with no consequences. Athens, having seen the example of Thebes, agreed immediately, and Alexander was merciful and respectful to them. This creates a pattern that we see all throughout Alexander's history. If your city capitulates, he's merciful. If not, he's going to burn it to the ground. Alexander then marched on to Corinth, and Corinth also, at the point of the spear, recommitted itself to the league. So Alexander was now the king of almost all of Greece, except for the Peloponnese, which remained mostly in Spartan hands. Alexander left them alone, and he went east to attack Persia, which had been his dad's plan all along. Persia was weak, much weaker than it had been in the days of Xerxes. In 334 BC, Alexander, moving much more quickly than the Persians had expected, crossed the Hellespont into Asia Minor, or what is now Turkey. The Persian army met them at the Granicus River, and despite not having good position, Alexander attacked. Fighting in the front lines again with his elite troops, the Macedonians broke the Persian lines. Apparently, the Macedonians only lost 200 men compared to something like 4,000 for the Persians, which included the Persian king's son-in-law and brother-in-law. Alexander and the army marched through the rest of Asia Minor, and the cities there all capitulated. With only one battle, Alexander had conquered Asia Minor. As he marched through the city of Gordium, which had been the home of the semi-legendary King Midas, Alexander stopped there in the temple of Jupiter. There in the temple was an old cart tied to an ox yoke, and it was tied with a famous tangle of knots. This was known as the Gordian Knot, and there was a legend that anyone who could untie it would be the ruler of all of Asia. Alexander tried for a little bit, and then he just took out a sword and cut it in half, either bypassing the legend or perhaps fulfilling it. Alexander then marched south through what is now Syria, liberating cities as he went. On the Mediterranean coast, he blockaded the city of Tyre, which was known for being unconquerable because it was actually on an island just off the coast. Alexander eventually built a causeway across the water and breached the city walls. He was so furious at the city because it hadn't capitulated instantly and because it had also publicly humiliated some of his soldiers that he had almost all of the citizens in the city killed and the rest sold into slavery. Next, he marched further south, all the way down to Egypt. He conquered Egypt without much of a fight and he was proclaimed Pharaoh. Bet you didn't know that. Alexander was a Pharaoh. While he was there, he founded the city of Alexandria and commissioned its famous lighthouse in its library. He left it in the hands of some of, his, some of his trusted Greek generals. Then he turned east 
to face the rest of the Persians. Alexander met the main Persian army at Gogamela, which is across both the Tigris and the Euphrates River north of Babylon. The Persians greatly outnumbered the Greeks, but Alexander employed a bold but very risky strategy that drew away a lot of the Persian cavalry, leaving the Persian center vulnerable. Again, Alexander fought in the battle, this time as part of his own cavalry. He was riding Bucephalus. He and the cavalry lured the Persian cavalry away, leaving a gap in the middle of the Persian line, and the Greek foot soldiers exploited it. Again, this is one of those things that you just have to look up on Google to really visualize it. But the bold and dangerous strategy worked, and Alexander won a tremendous victory. With the main Persian army defeated, Alexander set his sights on conquering all the rest of Persia, so he went even further west. At this point, though, his men and his army were starting to grumble because they felt like they had come and done what they were there to do. And now it was time to take their considerable riches and just go home. But Alexander wanted to conquer some more. So he headed further east into India. He and the army crossed the Indus River and it won another huge battle against a much larger Indian army, which included war elephants. That Indian army was led by a guy named King Porus, who was supposedly seven feet tall. Alexander and his troops prevailed, but Alexander was so impressed by Porus's bravery that he let him live. Alexander intended to also cross the Ganges River and go further into Asia, but at this point, his men just finally refused. Alexander sulked for a couple of days, then he agreed to head back. At this point, Alexander now controlled the largest empire the world had ever seen. It was the peak of his power, but it started to decline even as he went back towards home. The march back towards Macedon was grueling, and many of his men died. In one battle on the return, Alexander himself was struck by an arrow, and for a couple of days his men thought he had died. He survived, but he was never quite the same. Eventually, he and his men made it back to Babylon, and some of the army went home from there. Now, one of the things that Alexander did in all the places that he conquered was to set up a Greek system of administration, with Greek as the official language of government and business. He was usually lenient to the cities that he conquered, leaving them to run their own affairs according to his new Greek system, but leaving them basically intact unless they had resisted him and made him besiege them, which always put him in a bad mood. And in those cases, he looted the city and enslaved or killed all the people that had been there. But he did set up this system of government everywhere. And even though this had only happened in a few years, the effects were lasting. Greek became the lingua franca, of the Mediterranean world, and Greek culture and values were spread all throughout the Mediterranean, Asia Minor, Persia, and even into India. Even though the effects of Alexander's conquering made a lasting impact, the empire itself did not last. Alexander had marched back to Persia, and while he was in the city of Babylon, he fell ill. He was sick for 10 days, and then he died. He was only 32 years old. It was 323 B.C., and it was the end of the golden age of Greece. Alexander was an amazing tactician, and he was beloved by his men until he took them too far. He's been known ever since his death as Alexander the Great, and he was truly one of the most amazing generals the world has ever seen. He never lost a battle, despite almost always being outnumbered. He's up there with Julius Caesar and Napoleon, both in terms of being a great general and just in terms of being famous. If he had to make a list, of the most famous or influential people in all of the world's history, Alexander would be in the top 10 of either list, famous or influential. And he did all of that in just 12 years, which makes it even more amazing. 
but in part because his empire was only 12 years old and also because Alexander died relatively unexpectedly, there was no plan of succession. He had no children, although he did leave behind a couple of pregnant wives. But he never had named an heir. So at his death, several of his generals basically partitioned the empire amongst themselves. And of course, they immediately began to fight each other. And they fought for several years until there were basically three rulers left standing. Back in Greece, a general named Lysimachus controlled Macedonia and Thrace, and his kingdom was called the Thracian Macedonian Kingdom. Another general named Ptolemy, with a P at the beginning, was in control in Egypt and the eastern Mediterranean, including Judea and Samaria. And the last king was named Seleucus, and he basically controlled what used to be Persia. His empire was called the Seleucid Empire. The Seleucids and the Ptolemies fought over the lands of Syria and Judea for years. One of Seleucus's descendants, a general named Antiochus, eventually pushed his way down from Persia through Syria and through Judea around 168 BC on his way to attack Egypt. But while he was preparing to attack Egypt, a delegation from another city came to visit him and put him in his place. This delegation was from Rome. Now, we've not kept up with the growth of Rome here since we kind of have been following the storyline of Alexander, so we've gotten ahead of ourselves. Again, we'll be coming back to them in a bunch of upcoming episodes. But in 168 BC, at this time, the Romans were the most powerful nation in the Mediterranean. They hadn't yet pushed their way around to Egypt or Judea, but they had their eyes on them, and they didn't want Antiochus to get there. And Antiochus knew how fearsome the Romans were, so he had to be careful. The Roman ambassador who was talking to Antiochus told him that the Senate did not want him to march on Egypt. The Romans wanted the Ptolemies to stay in power in Egypt. The ambassador asked Antiochus directly if that was his plan. Antiochus hesitated and did not give an answer, so the Roman ambassador, in typical Roman fashion, drew a circle around Antiochus in the sand they were standing in and told him not to leave the circle until he had an answer for the Senate. Oh, that's so Roman. We'll come back to them and their bullying, conquering ways soon. Antiochus was taken aback, but he didn't want to go head-to-head with Rome, and so he said he wouldn't attack Egypt. But he did conquer his way down near Egypt, taking Syria and Judea, before he stopped. By the way, this is the notorious Antiochus Epiphanes, who in 167 BC desecrated the Jewish temple in Jerusalem, and he set up a statue of Zeus there and offered to the Zeus statue burnt offerings of pigs. The Seleucids tried for several years to destroy the Jewish religion, but the Jews rose up in revolt, led by a guy named Judas Maccabeus, or Judas the Hammer. The Jews won their freedom for a while, but eventually the Seleucid Empire took back over, although this time they left a sympathetic puppet king ruling over them so the Jews could basically do what they wanted. So at the end of Alexander's reign, his empire fell apart, and after some fighting, it basically ended up in three pieces. But all three were still joined by using the same language as their official government languages and now the go-to trade language. So Greek became the language of trade and commerce in the Eastern Mediterranean, and it stayed that way, even into the Roman Empire. Greek was also the language of scholarship and academics because of, well, Aristotle. And that's how everyone studied And for many years, Greek was the language until it was later supplanted by Latin in the West. Greek stayed the language in the Byzantine Empire for more than a thousand years.
I've mentioned this before, but this is why the New Testament was written in Greek. It was the main shared language that everyone used, sort of like English is today. Why is English the shared language today? Well, it's a combination of the fact that Great Britain basically conquered the entire world back in the 1700s and 1800s. That plus the fact that after World War II, the United States became the dominant world power. So for 300 years or so, the dominant world power has been English speaking. Also, it's just easier than French. It might not be as easy as Spanish. And if Sir Francis Drake hadn't beaten the Spanish Armada, then we might be all listening to this in Espanol y no en inglés. So just like English today, Greek was the trade language of the Mediterranean world at the time the New Testament was written. It's a safe bet that of all the New Testament authors, the only native Greek speaker was Luke. The rest were probably all native speakers of Aramean, which was left over from the Assyrian conquering of much of the Holy Land. The Jews also spoke Hebrew, but their day-to-day -day language was Aramean. So Matthew, Mark, John, Peter, and James, who together wrote a lot of the New Testament, were probably not native Greek speakers, even though they wrote in Greek. Then there's Paul, who probably spoke Aramean, Hebrew, Greek, and possibly Latin, since he was also actually a Roman citizen. But they all wrote in Greek, because that was the trade language of the entire Mediterranean. That's who they were trying to communicate to. If it hadn't been for Greek, some of the books of the New Testament would probably have been written in Aramean, and maybe some in Hebrew, and maybe in Latin too. But as it was, it became Greek. Christianity probably wouldn't have caught on as quickly if that had been the case. But hey, as the New Testament says itself, it was the fullness of time when it was time for Jesus to come. So maybe near universal Greek is part of the fullness of time idea. Anyway, the point here is that one of the legacies of Alexander the Great was a common language, which also became the language of the New Testament. For the first 300 years or so of the church, the church's language was also Greek until it, like everything else, was conquered by the Romans and everything switched to Latin. We'll come back to the Romans and how they became so fearsome in the episode after the next. But before that, I want to, like Alexander, journey to the east and take a look at Siddhartha Gautama, who later became known as the Buddha. Special thanks to my daughter, Aubrey, for today's intro.